Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. That's greenlight.com ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Murder Mile. Today, I'm standing on Harrington Gardens in Kensington, SW7. Two roads north of the unsolved killing of Countess Lubienska. Just a few roads west of the murder of Detective Sergeant Raymond Purdy. And a short walk north of the Union rep who blew his whistle too early. Coming soon to Murder Mile. At 19 to 25 Harrington Gardens currently stands the other house. A six-story mid-Victorian terrace which like it once was is a residence club where posh patrons enjoy the privilege of living in a hotel room for a year without being blighted by their snot-nosed brats or nightly fights with their spouse. Imagine that. The sheets in your second home changed daily by a maid. A busboy stocking your minibar with free Toblerones. And you can even leave your skanky pants by the door for the valet to clean. Oh joy! Little has changed since 1954, when this was the Abancourt Hotel. A mid-level hotel for passing trades and long-term residents, which catered for 1950s tastes. Serving pies and puddings for dinner in the carvery. Daily newspapers delivered to your door. And you could even buy cigarettes at the reception. For many, it was a place of safety in a hectic city. But in the early hours of Tuesday the 9th of March 1954, two immature young boys called Ted and Ian chose to get rich quick by breaking in, tying up the night porter and robbing the hotel of its haul of cigarettes and the safe containing £700. Only being so inept, their inexperience led to a good man's murder. My name is Michael, I'm your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 227, Silly Little Boys. 
This is in the story of a well-planned heist by hardened criminals hell-bent on making a million. But two silly little boys from different backgrounds, who being unable and unwilling to do a decent day's work for an honest wage, decided to take the easy way out and to steal it. No matter the risk. Kenneth Gilbert was born on the 9th of May 1932 in London as the illegitimate son of Hilda Gilbert. According to the fragments which were recorded on his rather sparse birth certificate before he was abandoned. With no home, family or plan, Ted as he liked to be called, drifted through life unkempt and ruffled. With the few words he rarely spoke, often grumbled in a coarse and offhand manner. And with no friends to chat to, nor hobbies to occupy his mind, he kept himself busy and remained tight-lipped about everything. Assessed by a prison psychiatrist, Ted was described as having a limited vocabulary and knowledge. He needed prompting in conversation and his powers of judgment and reasoning were poor. Raised in public institutions, age 12, he was sent to Borstal to be disciplined. Imprisoned amidst grey concrete walls and thick iron bars, his education was to be barked at and beaten for disobedience. So it's no surprise that he was described as a bully who resented authority, having been forced to work on a farm. As a troubled orphan, who nobody wanted to deal with, he was bounced between approved schools in Rill, Liverpool, Nottingham, and having escaped from Salterford Senior, on the 18th of August 1945, aged just 17, he was committed to two more years of Borstal training, where he was described as difficult. The system, which should have been there to protect Ted, had failed. And spawning an angry young man who was lost and hopeless, it was decided that what he needed was a stricter form of discipline. On the 17th of April 1952, released on license from Borstal, Ted was enlisted into the Royal Army Veterinary Corps at the Central Ordnance Depot in Chilwell in Nottingham. Where again, being barked at by bullies, he was forced to serve them food in the officer's mess hall. Within three months, being described as undisciplined and mentally dull, he was sent to the army psychiatrist who recommended his discharge after 187 days of service. Unwisely stating, treatment after discharge is not necessary, but he may need some assistance in settling into civilian life. Only as expected, he got none. On the 20th of October 1952, 
20-year-old Ted was dumped in the bustling city of London. Skilled only in farm work, he drifted between hostels and halfway houses. He struggled to hold down even menial jobs as a hotel porter, a trawlerman, and a boiler stoker. And he had to see his probation officer every week. On the 30th of April 1953, at the County of London Sessions, he was sentenced to two years probation for shop-breaking and theft. On the 13th of November 1953, in Grimsby, he was fined three pounds for assault. And for as long as he could remember, Ted had no purpose. And although silent, underneath, lay a bubbling rage. As a spoiled child from a good family, Ian's life was the mirror opposite of Ted's. So it's odd to see that both boys ended up in the same place, committing a petty crime for cash and taking a good man's life. Ian Arthur Grant was born in Surrey on the 30th of December 1929. The only child of well-adjusted and middle-class parents who lived a nice life in a quaint village and gave him whatever he wanted whenever he wanted it. Only fine foods and limitless toys don't always make for a good child. As being spoiled rotten, Ian was prone to temper tantrums and tears, being a mummy's boy who could do no wrong. Unsurprisingly, like Ted, as he lacked any skills, order or focus, his downfall wasn't his sullenness. Far from it. As lacking the maturity to be silent for a single second, Ian was a chatterbox who would talk to anyone about anything just for the sake of filling the sound of nothing and making conversation. Leaving school, his expensive education was of little benefit as failing to hold down even a menial job as a factory machinist at a Marconi plant. This was followed by several short periods as a hotel porter. In May 1948, age 19, with military conscription still enforced, like Ted, he was enlisted against his will into the army, but described as unstable, immature, and a dull, useless youth. After seven months, he was discharged, and he was dumped in London with no money, no skills, no purpose. What sets both boys apart was that, although a product of a fractured family, as Ian drifted between mindless jobs and filthy hostels, his father always stepped in to make his life easier and hopefully to bring this petty selfish jabbermouth back onto the right path. When Ian struggled to cope with his mother's death, his father sought out the assistance of a probation officer. 
when Ian was arrested for car theft. His father of the charge dropped, and Ian dealt with under the Mental Deficiency Act. Described by Dr. Waterson as not certifiable or feeble-minded, but dull and backwards. Although they had tried to readjust him back into family life with his father and his stepmother. In September 1951, he left home and drifted towards Kensington. As young foolish men, with no one there to guide them, although two very different boys who were raised in very different ways, having both moved to a hostel at 90 Harwood Road in Fulham, Ian and Ted had found their kindred spirit. Later sharing a room and becoming the best of friends, they held down regular jobs as porters at the Ideal Home Exhibition and earning an okay wage, they did well. To say that the robbery was doomed to failure would have been an understatement. Ten days prior, with Ted short on cash as the exhibition was between events, he said to Ian, How about breaking in to the Abancourt Hotel? As Ted had worked there as a boiler stoker for three whole months, he claimed he had seen where the head receptionist had hidden two and a half thousand cigarettes, which they could easily sell, as well as the key to the safe containing 700 pounds, the equivalent of a year's salary for both. Ted said, I'd seen this girl put the money in a tin box, and I thought she kept it in the reception's drawer. I knew the run of the place and how to get in without breaking anything. Trusting Ted, Ian decided to go along with this half-witted heist, as Ted knew how to get into the hotel without force and no one would get hurt. And over the following nights of what would be little more than a week, they chatted about it a bit. Ted said, I decided we'd do the job on Monday night, as the stock of coke would be low. Which was smart, as at night, every window and door was locked, and any smashed glass would raise the alarm. But with the basement boiler being coal-powered, having been the stoker, he knew that the coal hatch facing Harrington Gardens was always unlocked, and that no one would ever think to check it. Again, the timing was solid. As Ted said, I decided the best time to break in was midnight to 1am, as I knew there would only be one porter on duty, which there was. Age 53, prone to drinking five pints of beer before his shift, and currently struggling with a chronic bout of bronchitis, George Smart was the night porter and until at least 7am the next morning, he would be by himself. Having got to know George's timings during his night shift, 
Ted knew when and how to overpower him, where to tie him up, and having robbed the Siggies in the cash, he knew they'd be gone before anyone knew. I told Ian that after we go to the dining room, we wait for the Hoover to start up. As George always vacuum cleaned the carpets at roughly 1am, and this familiar sound would make for a good distraction. To lure him over, from the back of the lift, where the switch was, we'd turn off the light, slam the door, and call George over. George! And with his back to the dining room door, I'd grab him and lock him in the telephone box. Tying his hands and feet, gagging his mouth, and using a length of bandage to seal the door shut. We would then go over the place and get what we could. With the tools, a length of string and a crate bandage in their pockets, as well as a cunning disguise of a handkerchief to cover their faces and flat caps to cover their heads. The plan itself was not the problem. Monday the 8th of March 1954 was a classic British day with the weather a mix of chilly and drizzle. At 11pm the boys left their hostel and strolled 30 minutes northeast. But with the street still a little busy as two policemen patrolled we walked around for about half an hour before heading to the Abancourt Hotel. From outside, the door was locked, the windows were shut, a few lights were on, and there was no noise emanating, except for the soft sounds of patrons sleeping and the clunk of the basement boiler. Ian said, We climbed over an iron gate to the side of the hotel in Harrington Gardens, and then down some steps. Their faces covered by patterned cottoned handkerchiefs, like the highway bandits of yesteryear. Creaking open the wooden hatch to the stoke hole, which was hidden under the footway. As predicted, the coke level was low, making it easy for the boys to clamber over. But owing to tons of black coal, covered in a powdery, but sometimes a thick syrupy goo, Throughout the night, they left prints across everything that they touched. Creeping quietly through Boiler House 1, having snuck down the passageway, they sidled up the stairs to the ground floor, and beside room 10, they spied George the Porter hoovering the dining room. And as expected, Having had five pints of beer before work, he was muttering, and owing to bronchitis, hacking up his mucus-filled cough. They were at the right side of the hotel to see the porter, but the wrong side of the ground floor to be near the phone box. 
So with the hoover on, Ted sent Ian three doors south to the reception with the plan to distract old George. To tie him up, to gag him, to drag him to the phone box and to make their escape. Only this simple plan would be fatally flawed from the start. Ted would state, at the back of the lift, Ian would switch the light off, slam the door, and call George. George. It was that simple. Only the second he flicked the light switch, he realised that the dining room hadn't been plunged into darkness, and old George was still hoovering. So as Ian returned to Ted, the two began to whisper. It's not working. What's not working? The light. What do you mean the light's not working? It's a light. You flick the switch and it goes off. Yeah, I know, but it didn't. What did you flick the right switch? What do you mean did I flick the right switch? There's one bloody switch. And so it went on. It should have been a foolproof plan. Only these fools were proof that the plan was fucked. As a backup, they could have waited. They could have left. They could have crept about quietly with one lad as a lookout, which wouldn't have been a terrible idea, as old George was busy, sickly, and a little bit pissed. But being too keen to grab 2,500 ciggies, and maybe 700 quid. Ted had another plan. Ian, go into the dining room, call out George, and get him to chase you. And that was it. Let the night porter see him, losing the element of surprise, possibly alert the sleeping staff, and then run like buggery. It was a bloody stupid idea. But not being best blessed with brain cells, it was the best idea they had. Ian said, I went in and called out, George, come here a minute. He had his back to me. I don't think he heard me, so I called out again in a louder voice. George, He saw me. The lights were on, and I panicked. Repeatedly shouting, Where are you? you? As old George struggled to keep up, as his rattling lungs wheezed after weeks of battling bronchitis, Ian said, I ran down the corridor, and George ran after me. And as he followed this would-be thief into the servery, a small side room in which the food is prepared. Ian realised that he was cornered, and as George grabbed him by the sleeves, that he was trapped. Ian later told the court of his fear. He had his arm raised as if to strike me, 
It was coming down, and I caught hold of it and turned his wrist. I gave him a light blow to the stomach with my hand, just to scare him. But as he did this, Ted creeped up behind him and struck him with some heavy blows to the face. Dropping to the stone floor like a sack of spuds, as they tied his feet with string, they realized they hadn't got enough to bind his wrists. So short on options, they used George's tie. And with the scullery being nowhere near the phone box where they had planned to leave him, they decided to dump him there. Even at that point, they knew he wasn't well. As one had said he was groaning, and the other remarked he was breathing heavy through his nose. As the night porter lay motionless on the floor, and a slowly forming pool of blood expanded around his stationary body, it bubbled as his nose breathed out. George was no harm to anyone, but fearing for their capture and realizing they hadn't brought anything to gag him, they silenced him with several serviettes and an oven glove held in place by a bandage. An autopsy confirmed that although George's mucus-filled lungs had exacerbated his slow and lingering death, it wasn't the cause. Being punched, his jaw had fractured, and with it being weaker than most owing to a buried tooth, with his mouth and nose covered by a gag, he had suffocated in his own blood. The autopsy also confirmed that he was semi-conscious when the gag was applied and that he didn't put up a struggle. But with the porter still groaning, Ted kicked him several times in the side of the head. With the porter subdued and creeping ever closer to death, being the epitome of incompetence, the two boys dashed to the reception desk to fill their pockets with the loot they felt they had earned. Unable to find the key to the reception, they had to get a chair to clamber over the six-foot partition, almost slipping and knocking over a lamp in the process. Unable to find the keys to the cigarette drawer, they had to nick a screwdriver and to jimmy the lock open, leaving fingerprints everywhere. And again, having seen a key, but not the key to the hotel safe, having fled clutching all they could carry, Ian left behind his cap, and having hailed a taxi to take them back home, Ted dropped half of their booty. Back at the hostel, on their bed, Ted and Ian laid out the riches from their robbery. Having promised a haul of 2,500 cigarettes, 
and a stash of cash worth £700, almost a year's salary for both of them. As these two silly little boys had tried and failed to play at being big-time gangsters, all they had got away with was 700 cigarettes, 40 of which they had already smoked. And from a petty cash tin, just two pounds in assorted silver and copper coins. Initially, the police were at a loss as to who had murdered George, as no one had seen the boys either enter or exit the hotel. And having never robbed a hotel before, a manual search of the police's fingerprint database wouldn't link to Ian and Ted. And yet again, it was their incompetence which would collar them both. At 12pm the next day, having gone into work at the Ideal Home exhibition, Ian said, Ted showed me the early edition of the star. I saw the headlines and I realised that the night porter was dead. Panicked, desperate, and knowing that neither of them had the slightest clue what to do, they lured into their confidence a colleague called Donald Chapman. With Don, they left the ticket to the stolen items they had hidden at the left luggage kiosk at Waterloo Station. They told him of their plan to flee to Dublin the next day. And with Ian being a chatterbox, who especially when nervous, was prone to fill in the awkward silences of a conversation with anything... Ian told Don everything about the robbery. And being a decent chap who was raised well, Don did the right thing and called the police. Arrested the next morning, although they both denied any knowledge of the crime. Being told that the other had blabbed, they both admitted to a minor part, but blamed the other for the bulk of it. During a quick investigation, the police found their gloves with coal dust on, their clothes with spots of George's blood, and at their hostel, a man called Derek Quinnell, who Ted and Ian had discussed the crime with beforehand, asking him to be part of their caper, which wisely he declined. A psychiatric assessment of both boys described Ted as of subnormal intelligence. He is immature and emotionally unstable, largely due to the circumstances of his birth and his upbringing. With Ian described as immature, childish, selfish, spoiled, and unable to control his emotions and his desires. Tried at the Old Bailey from the 10th to the 12th of May 1954, they both pleaded not guilty. With Ted stating, we had no intention of causing any injury, just to overcome him and place him in the phone box. But having later admitted 
that that was all a lie. The jury would conclude that the bandage wasn't long enough to secure the phone box shut. Found guilty after just 20 minutes. Although through their appeals, they blamed one another. On Thursday the 17th of June 1954, Ted and Ian, two lost boys who had become each other's soulmates, were executed at Pentonville Prison. And being hung side by side, these two best friends were the last double hanging in Britain. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. Christ the Lordy! Oh, hat off for you. There you go. Oh, dears. It doesn't feel hot today, and it's not hot because I've already been out, but cripes, it's, uh, I think it's one of those days where there's just no air, or there is air, if there there wasn't air, oh actually, touching the pillows which are protecting the sounds from my windows, actually, yeah, they're quite warm, I don't think it's hot out, but it just feels hot out, oh dear, anyway, I'm just opening up all the windows, there we go, I'm going to pop on a... What shall I have? Shall I? Let's have an herbal. An herbal. How have I put water in the kettle? No, I haven't. How have I put water in... Uh, I've just said that. My brain's gone. I'm tired. It's been... It's an early start today. 
I was up before dawn moving the boat. Uh, moving the boat and then, hang on, there we go. Moving the boat and then filling up with water, which is an essential part of living on the boat, uh, which is good. I filled up the water tank in my boat with water and then I filled up all my, my emergency water bottles, uh, which I keep on the boat. And then when I moored up a little while later, I thought, oh, I didn't pick up the water bottles. I left them at the water point and they were about a mile away. And I can't be fucking bothered to go and get them. Oh, God, Michael, your life is exciting. That's how exciting my life is. So yeah, early start this morning, but I moved into a nice place. Uh, it's 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 a place where in the evening all the all the there's like hundreds of geese come here and uh, uh, horses over there's like loads of horses and they all come to the water and they have like a uh, a good old um, a good old drink of the water so there we go there we go core Michael your life is exciting still no cake still on my diet still trying to be a good boy so there we go even though I may be celebrating today because oh exciting uh, today uh, being the 12th of september uh don't, don't forget i'm recording this in the past Ooh, in the past not in the future um i'm recording this in the past uh, 13th uh, so 12th of september it's my anniversary my 10 year one decade anniversary of the leave, leaving the bbc when they uh, made me redundant and asked me to leave and uh yeah i went off and, and did my own thing and i've if you go on social media i've already done a post about this but yeah it was first five years were really tough and difficult but you know we're the the next five years after that i started doing my own thing uh murder mile happened uh the walking tours about eight years ago the podcast is almost by the time you get this it would have been six years of murder mile the podcast of which how many episodes have i missed none none that's dedication for you even with everything that's happened in the last couple of years i haven't missed a single day so yeah all all going well all going well so i'm gonna treat myself tonight i'm gonna have some nice food i think i might have something some a nice treat of some kind oh maybe like a trifle or something that'd be lovely uh, maybe a beer i haven't had a beer in a while I, I i've i went out with a mate a little while ago but you know some people drink every night i don't drink every night i've i normally drink once a week but i've stopped kind of doing that as well just trying to be a bit bit better organized now so yeah so that's all good so i'm going to treat myself and have something nice and then tomorrow off out to go watch a film with old old hairy bastard uh marco uh so looking forward to that that'll be good fun just nice to have a bit of a day off gonna film the videos for this as well gonna go to kensington and film those vids um my kettle is i'm gonna catch it before it boils uh so uh thank you to new patreon supporters so thank you to sonia the blood angel turner so there you go thank you sonia the blood angel turner that was in in quotes uh um so uh thank you for uh supporting uh uh murder mile on patreon i hope you get all the the lovely goodies that you get with it that's all very exciting and uh all the all the videos and all the all the crime scene photos all the stuff that i don't share everywhere else you know some people share everything on social media i i i, I keep it all secret for, for everyone oh coot outside being a pain in the ass you can hear that you can hear that there we go and oh hang on there we go oh wow hot 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 I think my water might be too hot. So that means probably, probably I won't drink this because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bugger off to the coffee shop in a bit. 
just uh, finished doing some stuff. Finished doing some stuff, of course. What what is the stuff I'm doing? Well, if you if you subscribe to the Patreon account and you uh, and there's oh god like 180 episodes of walk with me which i do like a weekly podcast i do exclusively for patreon and that's where i let you into all the secrets so there you go all on there let's do the quiz questions uh let's dive into some extra stuff that isn't in the episode and uh then i can i can bugger off to the coffee shop oh maybe i'll have a cake there half past one normally the cinnamon buns are gone by then they only do two. I never get it. They only do two cinnamon buns. <sighs> At least when I'm in in the other the other coffee shop that I go to, they know that I like the cinnamon buns. So there we go. Uh, let's do some quiz questions. Don't forget, I haven't edited this episode yet, so the, uh, I may have edited uh, edited that bit of the that what would become that question. I may have edited that out of it. I don't edit extra mile this bit this isn't making sense at all i don't edit this bit extra mile but i do edit the first bit that's the bit i slog my guts out working on um but because i haven't edited that yet the bit where this question is contained in may get edited out but it may not so let's see uh question number one what was the name of ted's mother there you go can you remember that one that was a while ago question number two name one of the three places where Ted went to approved schools. So I named three places. What were they? You name one of them. You, you can impress yourself if you name all three. Question number three. Roughly how many days did Ted spend in the army? Uh, if you're right within ten, I'll give you that one. Question number four. Name one of the three jobs that Ted did before uh so before the murder what were the the three jobs that we know of that ted did prior to that you only have to name one of them you name three if you like if you you want to impress your friends wow uh question five how many siblings did ian have question number six what famous factory did ian work at question number seven what crime was ian previously arrested for and his father had the charges dropped Question number eight, uh, where did they both work as porters? Question number nine, why did they choose to do the robbery on the Monday night? And question number ten, how many pints of beer did old George have? Ah, oh, legend, what a legend. Uh, so, yeah, uh, let's dive into some stuff about the robbery itself. Hence, I've put all the questions about their lives. We'll dive into some kind of robbery stuff. Uh, let's uh what bit do i want to do what bit do i want to do um let's let's go start the end of this and we'll go into oh witness statements yeah i didn't use a lot of those in the episode uh so mary mcginnis she was a chambermaid she saw george at 10 45 p.m uh sitting at the desk when she came in she said uh, i went into the servery ironically that was where he would uh, she was one of the people who found him in the morning so uh, she said when she came in, in the morning she went to the servery about 7 7 15 a.m uh, uh the lights were off i switched them on and saw george lying there uh, I did not go up and move him. I then went to the dining room and then into the main lounge and the hoover was in there near the door. I don't think that all of the carpets had been hoovered. The ashtrays had not been cleared out. 
it was George George's job to clean the main lounge. Uh, she confirms. Uh, she also confirms I have never seen uh, Ian Grant on the premises. Other other people don't forget Ian uh, hadn't worked there before. Another guy who was a kitchen hand called Dick Harness. Dick Harness, what a name? Uh, he normally uh, did the dinner service, and he stated because uh, he would work in the scullery. He said that uh, when he went in afterwards, uh, he realised the oven cloth was missing. So the one uh, which was Exhibit Four, which was used to suffocate. Uh, well, meant to be to gag him, but he ended up suffocating uh, George. That was his oven cloth that was there. Um, uh, unfortunately, he had a horrible job he had to do that day. So even though when the police came in and they took all the photographs and uh, of the of the dead body and all the blood on the floor, obviously then the body was taken away. Uh, it was his job to clean up the servery, servery ready for service, because obviously the ho- it was still a working hotel and they were still expecting guests. So they had to cordon off that bit of the hotel uh, and then work around it with all the police coming in and out. And then they had to go back to doing their job. And it's his job to clean up... Um, the area in and around where George's body was found. Uh, not not a nice thing to do. Uh, the, one of the first officers on the scene was uh, PC Harold Rumpf. What a name. Uh, arrived at 7.37am. He went to the survey on the ground floor and saw the body. He called other officers. And uh, he stayed until Superintendent Judge and Inspector Massey arrived. I... I was going to go in deep into the investigation on this, but it was kind of very self-explanatory, so I felt it was better not to. Uh, Ethel Brinston was the manageress. She saw George the night before at 10.50pm. Everything was fine. Uh, She went to her room, which was upstairs. Quite a few of the staff were upstairs because they were day staff, so uh, sleeping upstairs. 7.30am... she came downstairs she saw george's body she saw uh, in the reception all the drawers had been pulled out and she called the police uh what else have we got uh she later found the cap so it was the one that ian was wearing which is exhibit 11 exhibit 11 uh behind the front door of the porch so he dropped it just before he left out uh john woodman was the head porter he went off duty at 6 p.m uh, he usually locks the basement doors before he leaves. Um, uh, he said uh, the staff usually use the front door and uh, they put the keys behind the reception desk. It's normal practice for the night porter to unlock these doors in the morning. So that's the front door, uh, the back door, the basement door as well. Uh, in the reception desk, there were cigarettes and money to the value of two pounds, one shilling and nine pence. When I came in, they found that the drawer was half open and there was money missing to the value of... Uh, he's written it all down there. I'm not going to go through all that. The cigarettes were various makes, including Churchman's. Uh, a screwdriver, Exhibit 5, was found in the drawer. The screwdriver had been in the toolbox and, it, and there was actually two screwdrivers in total they'd used. Um... So it's kind of weird with 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 these guys. They'd planned all these things, but then they, they hadn't got any backup plans at all. They totally ballsed everything up. Um, exhibit 15, there was a pair of shoes, which were George's. It had human blood on it, uh, and it had been scuffed where they had dragged him into a different position. Uh, I think they, they dragged him just underneath a, a trestle table, uh, so he was more out of shot should anyone come in and... Uh, 
come into the scullery and uh, and see him uh exhibit 616 his overalls were extensively bloodstained uh especially down the front um on the crime scene photos they've got his uh his overalls there and there's a lot of blood on them there really is uh autopsy was conducted by dr francis camps of the kensington mortuary uh in the presence of detective superintendent judge and dr gorski who did the initial um he was the one who certified uh, that uh, george was dead uh they said blood had partially come from the nostrils and a laceration to the outer side of the eyebrow uh there were small pressure marks on the on the wrist that's from the bindings uh, the string exhibit 24 was found around the ankles and tied in a hitch knot there's bruising and swelling to the left eye the left cheek and ear and the jaw potentially from where um part of it was probably from where he had fallen but another part was where he was punched in the face by ted uh, a fracture to the jawbone likely caused by a fist uh that jawbone is fractured and as mentioned in the episode uh, the jaw was weaker than most as he had a buried tooth so you got a tooth coming through and therefore that made the fracture a lot easier uh pressure marks in the shoulders and chest so that's likely from where um where he had fallen uh what else we got uh as mentioned he'd suffered from bronchitis and and don't forget this is uh i don't think we had uh sick pay in the uk until 1983 i believe it was so prior to that if you were sick you were a bit screwed you are unlike today where you go i'm gonna take off i'm entitled to sick sick pay so i'm gonna stay at home and watch telly because i've got a little bit of a sniffle um back then if you were sick basically you didn't work therefore you didn't earn therefore you didn't eat so was, um and that was up until the 1980s so um with him even though he got bronchitis and i sympathized with him because i had that for six weeks um he was still working at that point so his lungs weren't at full capacity they were full of mucus he was wheezy heavy breathing coughing up a lot of mucus as well so they said in his autopsy his lungs were not functioning properly um so cause of death was asphyxia caused by an obstruction to the airways by the gag uh, and because he'd got a broken he got blood coming into his uh, nose and mouth from a cut above his eye and then he's got the broken jaw and that's bleeding as well he's got blood in his mouth and his nose and it can't go anywhere it can't expel from his mouth and his nose because the gag is in the way and the serviettes are in his mouth as well so basically uh they suffocated him although not knowing that they suffocated him um let's do this uh so yeah the next morning they're at work uh ian said i saw he, he ted he calls him gilbert but his name's ted even though he's his name's not really ted that's his nickname i saw so i saw gilbert at 12 p.m at work he showed me the early edition of the star and it's, i saw the headline and realized that the night porter was dead gilbert and i discussed what was best to do and we decided to give the ticket which i'd got for my case at the station to don chapman uh, during the afternoon i gave chapman the ticket and the three of us met at 6 p.m for supper at the works mess um gilbert suggested that we go to southern ireland but we didn't have the money uh, they were kind of planning to do it that night uh don chapman uh who knew both of them because they'd worked together um bah, 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 bah. he said uh, on the morning of the 9th of march 
Grant, which is Ian, mentioned early in the morning that they had been to a hotel and had done a job there, and they got a few cigarettes. Later that day, Gilbert, which is Ted, approached me and said, Don, uh, what do you think I've done? Uh, I've done someone in and gave me, uh, and he gave me the Star newspaper, which is Exhibit 14 that they used. Uh, he said, I didn't mean to do it. What shall I do? I replied to the, that the best thing to do was to carry on working. Uh, at lunchtime, Gilbert was worried. He spoke about the hotel again and mentioned about the cloakroom ticket, the lost property ticket. They said they had disposed of some of the good goods at the cloakroom at the they say Victoria Station. It was it was Waterloo, uh, and he suggested that I should collect them and keep them until Sunday. I agreed to do this and said that they could collect them off me on Sunday. Now, the problem was that, as mentioned in the episode, uh, Ian is a, a, a blabbermouth and can't help but talk. So Donald said on the way. Uh, Ian told me that he and Gilbert left home at about 11 o'clock, went to the hotel, circled the block twice, and they arrived there earlier uh, than they had had intended to. First time they had passed two policemen, they circled the block again and then broke in from the side entrance. He didn't tell me a great deal about what happened inside, but he said that they had to get over a partition somewhere in an office. Uh, He said that the porter, at some period or another got hold of him and there was a short struggle and Gilbert came out and hit the porter. He said that Gilbert hit him with a couple of fists a couple of times. He said that they were each wearing a pair of gloves. They were, but they they took them off on various times. Uh, But he didn't think that Gilbert had anything on his hand when he hit the porter. Well, there you go. Uh, He said they got various brands of cigarettes, mentioning Piccadilly, Churchman and Capstan. He said they left the hotel and took two taxis. They didn't, they took one. And Grant uh, deposited the cigarettes at Victoria Station in the early hours. I left him at Star Road, that's where their first hostel was, and then went to Waltham Green Police Station about 15 minutes later. Gilbert told me that Grant tied up the porter with his own, i.e. George's tie, which is correct, and said that they got very little money, which was correct. Uh, what else we got? Uh, let's just have a little look here. I think it's all good. There was a lot of kind of toing, toing and throwing, throwing on this. They arrested one, then they arrested the other, and then they told. They they both were like, oh, we know nothing about it, and then they started blaming the other one when they found out that the other had been arrested, and they were blaming each other. So, yeah, they 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 weren't very faithful as as friends when it came down to this um uh they found uh, so there's a wooden case at uh, the lost property uh inside uh, they found 300 weight cigarettes sorry 200 weight cig- cigarettes 200 piccadilly 220 churchmen uh and 20 embassy cigarettes these were all kept in evidence uh as well as a duster which was used to put the coins that they they'd stolen in uh and a napkin they searched the lockers at their place of work and they found uh, a pair of woolen gloves which were ian's that's exhibit 19 and going back to their lodging they found a pair of leather gloves which were ted's um ted and ian both gave full statements of this throughout they're constantly kind of trying to hide the fact that they're kind of guilt with it they admit to some kind of things that were just quite obvious but other parts are like um 
trying to deny it um this I'm, i made a reference to derek quinnell who was in there he was a laborer at the church army hostel at eight star road so that was a hostel they were at before uh when they came up with the plan uh, they got to know uh, ted and ian um just it what makes it really difficult is that uh ian as i i call him in this ian but actually he hated being called ian uh, everyone always called him arthur which makes the kind of story kind of th- throw things off but i just felt uh ted and ian would sounded better because it's it's both their kind of uh, nicknames in a way um so he said uh, i got to know ted and arthur i got very friendly with them this is derek quinnell uh, ted suggested to me that we pull a job there at the abancourt hotel he told derek all the details about old george uh, that they were going to tie him up the keys to the safe are in the top drawer of the bureau just on the left hand side inside the door with these keys uh he said he could open the safe which would have around 700 pounds in it which as mentioned is about twenty-four thousand pounds i told him the only way i would do it was if there was no violence and he said it would be impossible without violence as the porter would stumble upon us if he wasn't tied up uh derek moved in with them to 90 harwood road which was the other uh lodging they moved into uh he said i was there only there about a week i moved out because i didn't like his ways uh all three of them had discussed uh, going into it together. Uh, Grant, Ian Grant, was all for it, but I decided I wanted to have nothing to do with it as I did not want to get involved with anything where violence was used. Well, he was very lucky there because uh, if he had, he would have been um, he would have been um, sentenced to murder. Um, even though this is this is one of those cases where if you go back to the Charlotte Street robbery, there's a similarity here. Whereas because they don't really know who committed the acts which ultimately led to the murder, therefore they're both charged with murder. So uh, yeah, even though one of them may may put on the gag, well, only one of them may have struck him around the face. Because of that, this is the way it goes. So they were both uh, initially executed. <laughs> So 17th of June 1954, they were both executed at Penterfield Prison. As mentioned, it was the last double hanging in Britain. Uh, Executed, I've got hiccups, by Albert Pierpoint, assisted by Royston Rickard, Harry Smith and Joe Broadbent. Um, For the sake of this, because because it was a double hanging, they needed to have three assistants in this. Uh, But... Uh, double hangings were outlawed by the Homicide Act of uh, 1957, and this was the last one that they did. Uh, I think, I think that is it. Yeah, I think that's it. I think that's all I wanted to add at the end there. Um, oh, again, I was going to make. I, I was considering making this one about what they said and and what the evidence can prove, but because last week's episode was kind of like that, and we we kind of had that with the. Um, the German one, uh, the three-parter, the shattered shattered memory. I felt we kind of covered that, so I just did this as a normal one. Oh, so let's do some quiz questions oh, before I fall asleep. Oh, it's been a long day. Uh, question number one. What was Ted's mother's name? Uh, it was Hilda Gilbert. Question number two. What Name one of the three places where Ted went to an approved school. Uh, it was a Rill, Liverpool and Nottingham. 
Question number three, roughly how many days did Ted spend in the army? So if you're within 10, I'll give you this one. It was 187 days. Uh, question number four, name one of three jobs that Ted had done before. Uh, he was a hotel porter, he was a trawlerman, uh, and a boiler stoker. Also, you can add in there, because I didn't make it clear in the centres, but he was also a porter at the Ideal Home Exhibition, which is one of the questions coming up. Uh, question number five, how many siblings did Ian have? It was a trick question, he had none, he was an only child. Question number six, what famous factory did Ian work at? It was the Marconi factory, which is a radio factory. Question number seven, what crime was Ian previously arrested for and his father had the charges dropped? I'm going to swig a tea. It was uh, car theft. Question number eight, where did they both work as porters? I just told you that one. Ideal home exhibition, where I used to work many years ago. And I uh, didn't murder anyone while I was there. Uh, question number nine. Why did they choose to do the robbery on the Monday night? As the stoke of coal would be low, um, meaning they could get in easily. Uh, and question number ten. How many pints of beer did old George have? Legend. He had five pints of beer before work. Lovely. Could never do that. I could never have a single pint before work or during work. I could have drink after work, but I couldn't do it during. Not at all. Anyway, I think that's it, folks. I think it's me done. I uh, hope you enjoyed that. Uh, next week, uh, another one-part episode. Uh, lots of single-parters to take us through to the end of the year. And at the end of the year, we've got a three-parter. And then that's us done. Lovely. So uh, have yourself a good week, folks. Stay safe. Be good. Thanks for supporting the show. Uh, time. <sighs> You're on the clock. Uh, I'm going to go off and have my coffee, and hopefully, I'm, I might have a little cake. Oh, or I might buy a cake and sneak it into the coffee shop. Mm. Have yourself a good week, folks. Stay safe and be good. Lots of love. Bye. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. Warbyparker.com covered. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. 
Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs> 